You know, the poles, uh, don't ask me what poles those are, but the poles rank every single year the two most encouraging chapters in the Bible. And every year, almost without exception, these two passages come in one and two. And sometimes they flip-flop, but usually year to year, these are ranked by believers as the two favorite passages that they go to every year to encourage their own heart. One of those is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, we know it as the love chapter. And um, that is a great, great section of scripture. The second one, and again, they switch off, is the passage that I bring you to this morning. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. It is a favorite of many across this globe every single year. As you're turning in your Bible to John chapter 14, it's best to see John chapter 14 really without a chapter break from John chapter 13. You remember there in John chapter 13, our last weeks together, not only did the Lord proclaim his departure from this earth and tell him that he would die, but he also told us of Peter's threefold denial. You remember as we walk into chapter 14, Jesus, as we've been saying, is in the upper room. It is his upper room discourse. It is his farewell discourse. It runs all the way from chapter 13 to chapter 17. In fact, all the way from 13 to 18 is really just a day in the life of Christ. But John the Apostle thought it so significant that he gave us all those chapters from 13 to 18. Some people ask me, what's the joy of teaching from the Gospel of John? And one of the joys, of course, teaching from the Gospel of John, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are what we call the synoptic Gospels. But John's Gospel is unique, and I mentioned this on the first week a few years back. 92% of the material in the Gospel of John is found nowhere else in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it makes it an utterly unique gospel. And here we come to that precious truth in the upper room. It is just the night before our Lord would be delivered up the next day on Friday. It is Thursday night. The setting here in John chapter 14 is Judas has just gone out from the 12 at that Passover meal, leaving Jesus with the 11. He is telling the disciples that he will die. Look at 1331. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That is a reference to his coming death just hours away, maybe 12 to 15 hours. And Jesus declared his departure. Look back in chapter 13, 33. He said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Imagine if you were one of the 12, one of the 11 at this point, and the Messiah, the Lord, God in the flesh, was about to depart from this world. He said it again if you look down in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Can't come right now, but you will follow afterward. And as he made these statements and he's been declaring these statements, uncertainty gripped their hearts, no doubt. The world was caving in for them. They were confused. They were bewildered. To say the least, they were perplexed at every step. Perhaps maybe in the mind of the other ten, if Peter's faith would give way to a triple denial in 1336 through 38, what will become of his fellow disciples? So you can put yourself in the emotions of that upper room. They are frightened. They are scared. And in the midst of that bewilderment, 
he's actually going to speak words of comfort to them. You say, well, what does Jesus say to these bewildered disciples in the midst of this turmoil? Look at John 14. Let me read the text with you. You follow along, 14, 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, he said, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you know him and seen him? May God bless the reading of his scripture. Let me break down John 14, 1 through 7. I believe the passage gives us, at least here, beyond the rest of 14, two encouragements that provide you hope in the midst of human chaos. Here is two great encouragements to us that will provide you hope in the midst of a world of human chaos. Here's the encouragements. Number one, he's going to declare the, 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 the comfort to you, the, the words of comfort to you, number one. And secondly, he's going to declare wondrous claims to you. Follow the text with me. Let's look at the first encouragement. Jesus declares words of comfort. He declares words of comfort. This is a wonderful passage, both for these disciples that were gathered, maybe for you as you come into this place of worship today. Here's what Jesus said by way of these words. He said, 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Stop there just for a moment. Let not your hearts be troubled. That word we've seen before, troubled, it's to be agitated. It's the ideal of to be thrown into some kind of confusion. And literally what the text reads is stop letting your hearts be troubled. Again, these disciples were anxious. They were frightened. They were troubled. They were agitated, if you will. They were being thrown into confusion. And Jesus says to them, he may even say to you this morning, stop, stop letting your hearts be troubled. It's a present imperative, and it implies that the disciples were already anxious. And of course, we know that Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knew their heart. He knows your heart this morning. And he declares words of comfort to them. As their world begins to unravel, he says, let not your heart be troubled. He speaks of that phrase, their heart. The heart in Scripture, both New Testament and Old Testament, is the seat of a person's will. It is the seat of their emotions. That one who loved them with perfect love in 13.1. That one who loved them to the very end is leaving the earth. In fact, not only is he leaving the earth, but he just told them at the Passover supper, supper that one of the disciples were going to betray him. Then he just told them that one of you in our midst even here will uh, tr tri-fold, triple-fold here, deny him. And they were sad. They were on the brink of devastating failure. They're gonna, one of them is going to deny him, and then the Bible says in the other Gospels that at the garden arrest, they're all going to flee to flee from him. But amazingly, you would agree in 14.1, his focus, rather than being on his own death, his focus, rather than being on his own soul that was troubled as he would go to take your sins on the cross, his focus is on the disciples rather than himself. The very one whose own soul was troubled would comfort these men who in just a few hours, one would betray him and they would all flee from him. And so he declares first here these words of comfort. Look at those words in 14.1 again. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. 
And I think what you have here is what we call a double imperative. Obviously, many of these men were reared within the context of Judaism, but he needed to exhort them there. I want you to believe in God, but then he backs that up and he says, believe also in me. Beloved, it is another incredible statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. I want you to put your trust, your hope, your confidence, your belief in God, but I also want you to put your hope, your trust, your confidence in me. In other words, he is God in the flesh. We've been studying the gospel of John. Jesus speaks the words of God and he performs the acts of God. Would you just back up in John just for a moment? One passage, you go back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Here is just a description of him speaking the words of God and performing the acts of God. Do you remember in 518? 518 here Jesus actually said back in 17 my father is working until now and I am working and this is why the Jews were speaking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father here's the phrase making himself equal with God So in verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or amen and amen, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may Marvel, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. What a statement there on the equality of God the Father and God the Son. And so when you come back now to these words of comfort, here is words of comfort to you this morning. Jesus would say, as when it was penned by this apostle under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, you need to believe in God. Believe also in me. He speaks both the words of God. He performs, if you will, the acts of God. And he, beloved, should be trusted like God. You believe in him, you believe in me. Just last week, Patty and I were in our home, and we got a knock on the door. Uh, Some of my family was in town, and instantly you knew that it was two women. Uh, They were Jehovah Witnesses, and my sweet wife came to the door with me, and we greeted them. and, And, of course, a Jehovah Witness does not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They will quote the scriptures to you. They quoted the scripture to me. They quoted Daniel chapter 7, to which I followed up. And he said he also says that in Daniel chapter 2, 44. They didn't know who I was. And we just, within a few minutes, you want to get to the person of Christ. And within just a couple minutes, we were at John 1, 1. Is that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word what? Was God. And that word in John 1, 14 became flesh because that is the marker. That is what, if you will, makes us distinct within the Christian faith is an absolute affirmation biblically of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is even using that here. You believe in God? I want you to believe also in me. I speak the words that came from the Father. I perform the acts of God the Father through me on this earth. And you need to trust me in the same way. And we kindly just shared that truth with them. I'm sure we'll see them again. I'm sure they'll want to come back to our house because we had an answer for them. But he spells out a little bit more here thoroughly as you walk in this exposition why we're to believe in him as we believe in God. Look at verse 2. He says to these disciples, to these troubled, anxious, perplexed disciples, listen, believe in me. And then he says in verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. He said, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, 
you may be also. Words of comfort. In other words, he tells these bewildered disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. And as he goes away, that great, great statement there, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going into that place called heaven. And he, verse 3, will come again so that we will be with him. What assurance, what comfort. Maybe you need to hear that even this morning. These are words of comfort to encourage you. That as he goes, he's going to prepare a place for you. And that place is called heaven. Now you'll note what he says there in 14 verse 2. He says, in my father's house. And that's a reference certainly in other places to the temple. But obviously he's moving past the temple here. He talks about being in his father's house. And he uses this phrase, at least in the ESV, there are, in my father's house, are many rooms I think it's the NASB that says there are many dwelling places. Remember in the old King James, there are, not, there are many, what is it called, mansions there. And he begins to give these disciples these words of comfort that I'm going. Listen, let not your heart be troubled because where I'm going, I'm going into my father's house. And in that house, verse 2, there are many rooms. There's many dwelling places. There's King James uses the word mansions. You know, it's interesting, in biblical times in history, it was very common for a father, maybe even a wealthy father, when his son would get married, they would just add on to their estate once he got married. And these estates just would grow and grow and grow as their kids got married. It was actually called an insula, an insula, I-N-S-U-L-A. And I think it's the image Jesus used uh, to share with the disciples and here that it conjured up the notions of these spacious and even luxurious Greco-Roman villas with numerous buildings. And these numerous buildings were set within gardens. And these gardens were filled with abundance of trees and they had flowing water in some of these villas. And here Jesus communicates a vision of the future of heaven that surpasses even that enjoyed by the most exalted ruler of the wealthy person of that day. So he says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I've got a dwelling place for you. Here it says in verse 2, he goes, I've got a place of many rooms for you. I've got this place in the King James mansions for you. And what I want to do is as I go, I'm going to receive you to myself. In other words, here's words of comfort to these anxious disciples is this. You will forever be in the presence of heaven with me. And in heaven, there are these dwelling places, these homes, these mansions for God's children. And the thought of scripture here is that they're not disjointed, but it's one house with many places. One house called heaven, if you will, and there's many rooms for believers. This shouldn't surprise us. Do you remember in Matthew 19, 29, when Jesus said to the disciples that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, I love this phrase, will receive a hundredfold. Listen, whatever you've left for the sake of Christ... For some, that's father and brother and sister and mother. You will receive, Jesus said, a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So he's speaking of heaven here. I I can't quite, for the time today, go into this, but I think I will in two weeks. One night this week, I, I just couldn't sleep as I was thinking about this place. I was thinking not only the place of heaven, but when Jesus said, I will receive you there to myself. I have to leave. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going into my father's house that where I am, you may be also. You know, heaven's an interesting place. If you have time today, go over to the book of Revelation in chapter 21. It talks about the capital city of heaven. 
Not heaven itself, because heaven, if you will, itself is infinite. But there's a capital city in heaven. And what's interesting is in Revelation 21, 16, it talks about being 1,500 miles cubed, if you will. Cubed, 15 by 15 by 50. In other words, it's a cubed square in many ways. Okay, not a square, but it's cubed in that way. And, and there was an engineer um, who calculated that 1,500 miles cubed would be 2.25 million square miles. It's interesting. This is what Revelation 21.16 says. 2.25 million square miles. Just to give you a comparison, London is 140 square miles. So when you talk about Revelation 21.16 cubed, you're talking about 2.25 million square miles. In fact, that same engineer just calculated it could hold easily a billion people. A billion people. And there's some commentators to say, I don't know if that, there's that many believers, but there's a widespread evidence within all of Scripture that some Bible teachers believe that heaven's going to be populated by a lot of babies. A lot of babies who lost their life, whether early in their age or even at abortion. And so this place, if you will, in the capital city, heaven is infinite, is that cubed area, 2.25 square miles. In fact, um, you got to remember, though, that the new heaven and the new earth at the same time are infinite. But if you're curious, go ahead and read Revelation 21. It describes this, that in the center of this massive, cubed, glorious, transparent, golden diamond is God's glory. And the glory of the Lamb. And it is blazing through a be- and being refracted to the endless new heaven and new earth. And around the city, Revelation 21 says there are jewels, massive jewels that spin out the colors of the rainbow. The city in Revelation 21 has 12 gates and each one has a single pearl from which the light bounces and adds to the transcendence. It's a place and it's called a heaven. And Jesus said he's going to take you there. And so what he does to these disciples in the midst of craziness, in the midst of chaos, he gives them words of comfort. He gives words of comfort to us. He would say to you this morning if you're anxious, he would say to you this morning if some of you struggle with a panic attack, you need to stop. You need to let not your heart be troubled because there's a place called heaven. What I'm going to do in two weeks, we have a fabulous young preacher with us here next week on September 23rd named Dominic Avala. So you need to come and hear him. But in two weeks on September 30th, I'm going to bring some material back to you just on heaven. And I want you to see what it's like in heaven. We don't talk about it enough. And so I felt like we need to talk about it more. But Jesus talks about this place. Look at the verse again in verse 2. He basically says, and maybe strongly to them, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? He said, if it were not so, would I have actually told you that? In other words, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, maybe you're seeing that phrase as I did. I go and prepare a place for you. What's, What's he talking about? This is God, Jesus. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the one who said, let the waters teem, and the waters flowed. This is the one who created all the animals, and all the fish, and created all the moon, and all the stars. And he created the sun. This is the one that just spoke the world into existence and he says, I'm going to go. You've seen that before. You've probably memorized it and prepare a place for you. In other words, is he building? (laughs) Does he have a construction company called Trinity? I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think that means when he prepares a place for you? Does it need to be worked on? What's he referencing here when he says, I go and prepare a place for you? I think the brilliant New Testament scholar D.A. Carson was right on. 
He said this phrase, I go and prepare a place for you, is that the words presuppose, presuppose. In other words, that the place exists before Jesus gets there. And it's not as though he's arriving on the scene and then he begins to prepare the place. No, rather, it is the going itself by way of the cross, by way of the resurrection, by way of the ascension that he prepares the place for you. In other words, I'm going and I've got to go. I've got to go to the cross. I've got to be raised on the third day. I've got to ascend into glory. And by my going, I am in that sense, have already prepared that place for you. In other words, without my death, without my resurrection, without my ascension, I could not make this ready for you. And it follows that if he goes to prepare that place for us by his coming death, look at verse 3. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I love this, I will come again and will take you to myself that where, that where I am, you may be also. I love that. He's referring here to his second coming. He's referring to the intimacy that he has in his heart towards you. He not only goes by way of his death, resurrection, and ascension, but he goes to prepare a place, but he's also for this matter, going to bring you to himself. In other words, he wants to take you into a permanent relationship that he's begun with you now, but one day will be face to face. In fact, look over in John 17, just a moment. Look at the intimacy there in that high priestly prayer. John 17, in verse 24, I love this, Father. He said, I desire that they also whom you have given me, I love this phrase, may be with me. That where I am, he said, to see the, my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. I love that phrase. I want to them that you, the ones you've given me may be with me. In other words, Jesus is so intimate here to these disciples. He gives them words of encouragement. He says, listen, I'm preparing that place that where I am, you can also be with me. So wonderful is Christ's love to the very end for his very own that he not only brings us into that place called heaven, but he brings us to himself. We'll say more on that in a, in a couple weeks. So first, so very kind. In the midst of his own turmoil, he declares words of comfort. But now, our Lord's going to show you that he himself is the way to heaven. He talked about heaven, but he wants to describe the way to it. And so a question arises in the text. Look down again. And he says to the disciples there, And you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas asks this question, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know what? The way. And praise God that Thomas asked this question. It provoked one of the greatest statements that Jesus has ever made in the scripture. So I take you from the words of comfort to secondly, Jesus declares wondrous claims, wondrous claims. Look at the claim in verse 6. You know it by heart. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, obviously, this is one of the six, or this is the sixth of seven great I am statements it's the sixth for us in John's gospel. You remember when he declares, I am, he is making himself, if you will, equal with God. Just as God said to Moses back in Exodus chapter 33, Exodus even 3, you tell him that the I am has sent you, okay? So whatever God the Father giving the, the reference to his name when he referred to himself as I am the everlasting one, now in the New Testament, Jesus is making that claim. He is saying, I am the great I am. I am an extension here of the Father. He said earlier in John's gospel, I am the bread of life. 
He said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He told the disciples in John chapter 10 that I am the door of the sheep. He said in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd who lays my life down for the sheep. He said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And here he gives the sixth of seven, I am the way. And I think the way here is for emphasis. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Certainly he declares, I am the way, I am the truth with the definite article, and I am the life. But I think really what the text is saying, all of those, you get that, it's what you understand it to be. But he's saying here, I am the way for the profound reason that I am the truth and the life. In other words, the emphasis here is on the way, and he's the way for the simple, profound reason that I'm the truth and the life. And then he'll give the seventh I am in the next chapter when he says, I am the true vine. Now, what he does here, beloved, is he makes three distinct claims regarding the exclusivity of his person. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Let's look at those distinct claims and remind ourselves of what they are and what they mean. His first claim is this, I am the way. And of course, it's in response to Thomas' question. Back in verse 4, Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so here, Jesus is declaring in exclusive terms, he is the way to God. And here, beloved, you know this, that the way is not a force, okay? The way here is a person. Jesus, therefore, in the scripture is not a guide. Jesus is not a guru. Jesus is not an enlightened prophet. He is, in this sense, the only way to God the Father. He does not merely show a way. He himself is the way. That's what he said. In fact, in the the book of Acts, the early Christians all over the book of Acts were called the way. In other words, it began to describe them. They're the people of the way. Acts chapter 9, 2 and many other places. Jesus, beloved, is the only way to God in our age of religious pluralism. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the way to God. I am the only way. I am the way to heaven. I am the only way. I am the only way to be forgiven. You say, how would that be? As he died on the cross and as you place your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you wonderfully, miraculously have all your sins forgiven. It says in Psalm 103 that your sin is blotted out like a thick cloud. Actually, that's Isaiah 43. Psalm 103, you know well, he removed your sin as far as the east is from the what? From the west. He placed your sins in Isaiah 38 behind his back. He cast your sin, Micah 7, into the depths of the sea. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgotten. Your sins are gone. He is the only way to God. Of course, this statement is as timely today as when it was first uttered from Christ. Not everybody believes he's the only way. I mean, we do. The scriptures do. But I think of people like ex Beatle, not the bug, but the recording artist from the Beatles, George Harrison. Years back, George Harrison died. And today's show anchor at that point was a woman by the name of Ann Curry. She interviewed a man by the name of Anthony DeCurtis. Anthony DeCurtis was a writer for Rolling Stone magazine. And DeCurtis talked about Harrison's He said, search for spiritual life. And here's what he went on to say about George Harrison. He said, Harrison was the most spiritual of the Beatles. Everything else in life can wait, but the search for God cannot wait. And and we see that phrase, and we said he was the most spiritual, but we're left here with the testimony of Scripture. What does that mean? I mean, it sounds spiritual that he was spiritual, but the question could be asked that wasn't in this interview, what God was Harrison searching for? What God? I mean, did you know that Hindus themselves 
have 330 million gods? I mean, in our day and age, which is somewhat new age, we, we just get excited about spirituality. I'm not quite sure what that means. The Hindus have 330 million gods. Put it in another way, they have about eight gods per family. In addition, the Hindus also worship 75 million cows. So when we talk about how to have a relationship with God, Jesus is quite exclusive. He says, I am the way. Not everybody believes that. In fact, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seems right to man, but its way, do you remember what it says? Is a way of what? Death. There's people who think they're on the right path, but they're on the wrong path. There's a way, Proverbs 14, 12, which seems right unto a man, but its way is a way of death. Maybe I've shared with you before, I have a friend who's a very high-ranking government official, okay? I don't have to give you his name, but a high-ranking government official. I remember I took my son one day to his office, and uh, I just had to check in with him. He went to the church that I pastored. And I went into him, and my son said to me, hey, Dad, who was that guy sitting outside? I said, that's his bodyguard. And my my son laughed, but it was a bodyguard. This is a high-ranking government official. He had to have that bodyguard go wherever he went. But this friend of mine loved Christ, and he was invited to speak at a prayer breakfast. And after he spoke at the prayer breakfast, just a few days later, he received a letter. And the letter was from a reporter after that event that they asked him to speak at the prayer breakfast. Here was the letter from the reporter. Quote, I'm quoting, What bothered me most was your remark that you felt you had to take every occasion you could, including the ecumenical prayer breakfast, which that wasn't the name of it. It was just a prayer breakfast. But the ecumenical prayer breakfast to let people know that they should accept Jesus as their Savior because it might be one of the few times those people have to save themselves and achieve eternal salvation. He said, forgive me, but I do not think anyone in that prayer breakfast was without their own faith. And those of faiths differing from yours probably did not wish to be accosted by you with your pushing your own doctrine, he said, upon them. He said, I feel you should restrain the expression of your personal religious beliefs at a public occasion. I mean, this is, this is the world. And he said this, he finished it. Don't worry, I think we'll all get to heaven one way or another under our own particular face. Faiths. Not true. Jesus said, I am the way. Beloved, do you remember the rich young ruler in Luke 12? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns. I'll build larger barns. I'll I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Eat, drink, and be merry. But do you remember what God said to him? He said, you fool. You know, I thought about that this week in a different way. It's one thing for you or I to call somebody a fool the way they lived. But it's an entirely Something else, if you will, for God to call that man a fool. You fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and now who will own what you have acquired? Listen, there is not many different ways to God. Jesus, in emphatic terms, precisely and clearly said, I am the way. But there's a second truth there. Look at it in 14.6. Not only is he the way to God, but he says, I am the the truth. In other words, beloved, he is the embodiment of truth. He is the way for the reason this. He is the truth. In fact, truth is one of the names for God. God's name is truth. And his son then is the revelation of God himself Jesus is the supreme revelation of truth about God. 
In fact, look back just for a moment in John 1. I just remind you of this. In John chapter 1, do you remember there we talked about in 1.1, the word was with God. But look back at John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of, what? Grace and truth. He's full of truth. He is the truth. He is the way for the profound reason that he is the truth. Glance down in chapter 1 of John, if you're still there. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's the truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God, ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, comma, watch this, he, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. I love that phrase. He has made him known. He has explained God to us. Jesus Christ embodies the truth. He is the truth. He explains God to us. He is called God in John 1.1 and John 1.18. He's called God in John 20 and in verse 28. He is, the Bible says, the self-disclosure of God. He reveals the truth to us, the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about sin, the truth about salvation, the truth about heaven, the truth about hell, the, the description of even heaven itself. If it were not so, I would, do you think I would have told you, Jesus says. He is the truth. Do you remember when that classic verse, when it says in the Bible, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. Jesus is saying in emphatic terms, I am the truth. Let me put it this way, beloved. The Christian faith expresses the objective revelation in God's word regarding the person of Christ. And the Bible says, and he declares right now, he is the truth. Now, not all agree with that. Hilary Swank, Oscar award-winning best actress, was asked by somebody in the media, where does Jesus fit all in, where does Jesus fit into all of your and your husband's success? Here's what Hillary Swank said. She said, it's not like we're Catholic or Christian or Episcopal, she's naming them all, or we practice Judaism or Buddhism even. She said, we just kind of believe in a higher power. And that doesn't mean a man-god or someone on a cross. It just means, she said, that we all have godlike qualities. We have the power inside of us to do good things. End of quote. That's the reflection of the world. But Jesus is going to come to us and say, I am the way. I am the truth, right? This is what it says here. I don't know if I got this scripture up. The next slide. We know, John the Apostle, same author, that the Son of God has come and he's come to give us understanding so that we may know him who is true. That's God, okay? And we who are in him who is true Watch this, in his son, Jesus Christ, and now this wonderful phrase, he is the true God and eternal life. Speaking there of Jesus. It's one of the greatest statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. They're all over. He is, speaking of Christ, antecedent there, is the true God and eternal life. Beloved, you remember when Pilate asked, you know the question, what is, what, truth? Well, Jesus said here, I am the truth. Listen, I just want to be so clear with you as your pastor. This is an exclusive message, okay? He said, Jesus did, I'm the way, I'm the truth. He'll say in just a moment, it is exclusive. 
And I just want to tell you that as your pastor, teaching pastor, as a group of elders, we just, we're not going to compromise, okay? I just want you to know it's not our desire to ever compromise. And I hear things every week from the community said about our church. Every week. Stuff said about me. Stuff said, I mean, but I just want you to know, we're not going to whitewash this down. We're not going to capitulate in, in ways that people wouldn't want us to be as clear. You just tell me, when you're reading this, Thomas said, how do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And then look thirdly, he gives you a third claim there. He said, I am the life. You say, what does he mean, I am the life? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, like God the Father, in John 5, 26, it sounds weird to say, they have life in themselves. There never was a time on this world where they did not exist. They are self-existent, okay? They have life in themselves, okay? And because Jesus is the source and the giver of life, when you become born again, he gives to you what then is called spiritual life. He begets a spiritual life in you. The Bible, of course, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans three ten. The book of Ephesians says that man's foolish heart was darkened. But when God Almighty sends the power of his word with the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit, he saves you and regenerates you and gives you spiritual life so that no longer are you walking around with only physical life, dead in your trespasses and sins. He breathes life into you. He gives spiritual life to you. In fact, this is the testimony of Scripture, if you write him down. In him, in John 1, 4, was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's not only the way, he's the truth, but he's the life. He's the only place where there is the source of life. Remember in John three fifteen, he says, Whoever believes may in him have eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have, what? Eternal life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more, what? Abundantly. Only Jesus can give life. Only Jesus, the one who can impart spiritual life. You can go on the greatest religious journey to the farthest country in all of the world. You can seek after all these kind of guru spiritual teachers. But I'm telling you that the Bible says that Jesus is the only source of true spiritual life. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And he says of those sheep, I give them eternal life. And they shall never, what? Perish. Only Jesus can give this spiritual life. Jesus, you remember in the previous chapter, in eleven twenty-five, a couple chapters back, he said, you can finish the statement, I am the resurrection and the, what? The life. In other words, there's no spiritual life apart from him. He said in eleven twenty-five, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So here Jesus declares he is the way, he is the truth, he is the only way to the Father, and therefore he is the only answer in all of the world to Thomas's question. Salvation, beloved, you know this, is not attained through different ways. Jesus is the only way because he is the only one sent from the Father. Beloved, I can't say it any more clearly. There is no other way to God. There is no other source of truth. There is no other source of life but through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at the text back in John 14. Look how he finishes it there in verse 7. He says there, If you had known me to the disciples, you would have known my Father also. And then this 
statement. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. In other words, he will tell the disciples in just a moment, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, from now on, here's what Jesus said, here is an unmistakable marker. You know him and you see him as much as you know me and have seen me. So here he gives these encouragements. He declares words of comfort. Let not your heart be troubled. And he declares wondrous claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. My son here is Johnny. He's uh, Johnny, how old is he now? 25. There was a time, I might have shared this with you, years back when he was a little boy. And one time we were at a pool. And it was a community pool, and somehow the gate at this community pool needed to be open. And there were people waiting at the gate to get into the community pool. And so we're waiting, and the crowd began to build. I don't know, maybe it was part of our family. It was pretty big. <laughs> and, and a few other families, and so there's 25, 30 people. Somebody says, I got the key. And it was like, yeah. So they put the key in the door. The door opens, and kids just fly into the pool area. And I had seven kids. I don't know if the twins were born at that point, but they probably weren't. Johnny was, I don't know, he's probably two. And so there's just kids flying in the pool, and I just go right to the first step. I'm looking around. Splashing's going on. Uh, There's water going everywhere, and I'm trying to be, like, just on the ledge, but I'm also looking out for my own kids, and I see this kid underwater. And, And I glance at him, and I, I could just tell from his body that, I go, that dude's little. But that dude's a good swimmer. I, I'm just thinking, there's water coming everywhere, and I'm going, that dude can swim. And about 10 more seconds go by, and I look down, and this little boy is just swimming. And I'm like, he's really good. He's not only a swimmer, he can hold his breath, okay? And then... Right as I was turning away to find my other kids, this is like a full court press to find them all, you know, I just caught out of the corner of the eye that that wasn't a little boy who was a good swimmer. I recognized that was the color of Johnny's swim trunks. It was him underwater. And I, he wasn't swimming. He was probably saying, Dad, come get me. So in cat-like Spider-Man effect, okay, I just hauled off into the pool, grabbed him by his trunks and pulled him out. And the amazing thing is he didn't have water in his lungs. And you say, how long was that going on? Well, I, I don't know. But when I pulled him out, I pulled him out. He, he, he was crying. And I think the truth is he was screaming underwater until I got him, you know. But as I, I look back on that, I reflect that many people today, they are drowning in a sea of religious tolerance, thinking that there are many different ways to a relationship with God when there's really, there's only one way. Do you remember what it says in the book of Acts? There is salvation in what? No one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here's somebody recently in the last couple years got saved by this verse alone. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. Who is it? It's the man, Jesus Christ. Now, if you look back in your Bible as we close out, look at verse 6. This is the, the, the definitive statement, I think, in some ways. He not only declares those exclusive claims, but he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, no one comes to the Father except by faith in me, through me, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection. You've got to believe in me is the point. And you know, and already in 14.1, he said, believe in God, believe also in me. He said in verse 7, if you know the Father, then you know the Son, or if you know the Son, if you know the Father. Verse 9, it says there, whoever sees Jesus has seen the Father. The point in the chapter is that if you know and believe in Jesus, then you know and believe in God the Father. 
And so you have to place your faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Each of you, sitting there just as an individual. I'm not asking about corporately, which we're in a corporate setting. Have you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Because no one comes to a relationship to the Father except through me. In fact, this is what the Bible says in John 6.35. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, shall never, what? Thirst. He said in John 11.25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And so there's belief, belief, belief. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And I would have to tell you, to just be honest with you, conversely, conversely, there are dire warnings for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Severe warnings. You say, like what way? John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son, John 3.18. He's the only hope. He's the only answer. In fact, Jesus said in John 5.23, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. If you don't honor his son, you can't honor God the Father as we know him. He said in John 8, 19, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Amazing. So what, you know what John 14, 6 does? It captures, beloved, the message of the entire book of John. And here's the point. Unless you believe that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, the heaven-sent Son of God, you, according to John 8, 24, will die in your sins. Listen, I'm begging you to put your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. There is no other way to access heaven. There is no other mediator between God and men but the man, Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else and I, I just got to tell you that we're going to just keep believing that. Let me, let me just push you a little further. It would be foolish for you to say, that's good, Scott, but I'm not ready. I, I just, just say, hey, Scott, I, I, I can understand that. I'll have to think on that, but I'm not ready. I just want to say that today is the day of salvation. This may be the last opportunity you'll ever have could be the last opportunity you'll ever have to hear the gospel. I cannot promise you that you will ever hear the gospel again. And if you're on the fence of making a decision or if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is working on you today, then the Bible would say you need to come to him. Come to him. The Bible says whoever is thirsty, let him what? Come. The Bible says, whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life, Revelation 22. Jesus would say at one point when he overlooked the city of Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how much I longed to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you were unwilling. Listen, I don't want you to be unwilling. I want you to come. I want you to open your hand to the person of Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And when you come to him and when you trust Christ and when you believe on that finished work there on that cross where he died in your place, he will give you the wonderful possession called eternal life. He will give you a wonderful home called heaven. He will in that measure, that way, give you a dwelling place that you might be with him forever. And heaven is going to blow your mind. Blow your mind. I'm going I'm to bring some stuff next week. And I know that Christ is at the center, that God is at the center, but I'm going to bring some stuff in two weeks, excuse me. 
from some of the writings of Jonathan Edwards that talks about what kind of relationships we'll have with one another, with one another in heaven. It's going to blow your mind. Listen, he came, the sinless one, died in your place that you, the sinful one, me, the sinful one, might be able to be taken to that place in glory. You can't work your way there. You can't earn your way there. You can't do enough good works to get there. You can't crawl up on your knees a certain amount of stairs. You can't say enough prayers. The only way you're going to get there is through the person of Christ as you look away from yourself and you look away to what he has done on the cross for you. Do you know him that way? I pray that you would. And if you do know him that way, then listen, he's prepared that place for you via his death, via his resurrection, via his ascension, that he's going to take you that where he is, you may be with him and you will be there forever in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever giving glory to God, knowing the reality and the power of eternal life. Listen, do you have that this morning? I pray that you would. If you do, then rejoice in it. If you don't, then I pray that you would do this, two things. To repent of your sin. You say, repent. Yeah, repent. Agree with God about your sin. You say, well, I'm kind of a good person. Well, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says if you keep the whole law yet stumble at one point, you've become what? Guilty of the whole thing. You may think you're a nice person, but compared to a holy God, one sin is enough to cast you out forever into that place called hell. In fact, you don't even need to become a sinner by practice. You're a sinner by conception because David said, you know, in my mother's womb, I was conceived. Sin is passed even in conception. Jesus is the only way. Amen, Grace Church? Listen, you go tell people that. You go tell people that this week in love and in grace. Let your words be seasoned with salt and let them come to Christ.